still on the chapter called Understanding Dharma and in the section called The Trapper's Snare. So we're just coming to the end of this chapter, uh, hopefully. Uh, maybe we can finish it today. When hearing the name of Dharma, don't get the idea that it is anything other than nature. We have it, we are it. Whatever you practice, strive to make it genuine. Strive to make the mind see. See impermanence, see unsatisfactoriness, see the absence of a self. See that nothing is permanent or lasting throughout this world of ours. That's all. When your view is like this, whatever you look at becomes truth. It makes you turn inward to see. External phenomena are no different from yourself. Keep turning inward continuously, and everything is Dharma. When you see animals, Dharma is there. Large creatures are Dharma. Small creatures are Dharma. Even when you see rocks, earth or grass, it's all Dharma, because all of this is nature. Seeing Dharma, you'll practice Dharma accordingly. This is what the Buddha's teaching is about. It's not something else that is distant from us. We're speaking about the source of the path. If you have faith and seek the Dharma, where will you look for it? Seeking in one monastery, searching it out in some other monastery, going to forests here and there. It just remains the way it is. In the forest, the Dharma is in yourself. Right there, in your body. If you go to learn in a monastery, it's pointed out the same way, right there within yourself. In listening to teachings, the principle is the same. It's not necessary to hear a lot. You should listen in order to understand and know what it's all about. What are the important points? What should be investigated? How should you practice? How do you want to train the mind? You want to liberate the mind from suffering, to go beyond conventional reality. Where is this conventional reality? Where is this suffering? How do you transcend it? So uh, there's a few themes uh, in here. In particular, Lumpur is underscoring this um, being Dharma um, principle. Uh, it's the title of the book, Being Dharma. And that uh, that's um, say shifting of the, the view to see uh, that rather than a self-centered perspective being realistic, uh, to to recognize those habits of seeing things in terms of my body, my mind, my life, my successes, my failures, my uh, my preferences and uh, likes and dislikes and so on, that uh, to see that uh, we are we are nature. <laughs> you know, that uh, it's always it's always puzzled me. Well, not always, but for a long time it's puzzled me when people use the words like I like to be out in nature. <laughs> And often the the the, uh, the the uh the response comes to mind well where do you think you are can can you get get away from nature i know what they mean i think they generally mean i like to be away from human constructions and to be out um in the in the fields or in the the forest or in the countryside but also if you look around the countryside fields hedges Grass, these are all human. <laughs> they have the human hand upon them, 
most forests in uh, in the UK, certainly in, in England, um, have got the have had the human hand on them. They're not wild. They're not wilderness forests. They they've been planted, tended, looked after, hunted in, uh, te- uh, cared for. So when we we look out over a landscape, we think, oh, beautiful nature. It's like, well, <laughs> it's uh, the, the humans are part of that nature. The fields, the hedges, the the the, the pathways, uh, you know, and so much of it is has got the the um, the human touch upon it. Lumpur Sumedha tells a story of how uh, uh, when he was many years ago, the Buddhist society used to have their uh, annual summer school for about two weeks at a place called Hai Li in Hoddesdon, uh, here in Hertfordshire. Nowadays they have it in uh, Sirencester at the Agricultural College. But in the in the past, uh, Buddhist society summer school used to be at, at this um, fairly uh, stately, sort of posh, ho- uh, stately home kind of facility called Hai Li that I think had been uh, the home of the Barclay banking family at uh, one point. Uh, anyway, so that uh, uh, there's usually about 120 people would gather for this event, so mixed between the Theravada people, uh, the, the Zen people, the Tibetan people. people there will be different classes, different sessions during uh, during the day for the different groups, different uh, different programs with different teachers, and then in the evening there would be a, a a talk that everybody would attend, like a whole sort of 120 people. We gather in the big, uh, big hall at, at High Lee. So I, I had the good fortune to go along a couple of times with Lumpur back in the, the early eighties to this. But he used to go every year and was sort of one of the, the the main speakers and teachers there at the at the summer school every year. And uh, he described how uh, one uh, one evening after the the talk had been given. Um, and the, uh, the after the, the talk it opened out the sort of French windows opened out onto this big courtyard with a fountain and all this sort of stately home kind of uh, accoutrements in the garden and so people uh, uh, came out of the hall into the uh, into the garden area and <clears throat> some very inspiring Dhamma talk had been given and so um, then Lumpur overheard this uh, this conversation as I remember the story being told that there were a couple of people standing nearby and one of them said, looking up at the the stars, wouldn't it be extraordinary? Wouldn't it be a a wonderful thing to be out there amongst the stars, just uh, moving through space, uh, through the vast infinity of space? The other person turned to them and said, where do you think you are? Uh, Planet Earth is... (laughs) flying through space uh, this is where we are we just we have a little sort of cozy little cozy uh, veneer on the on the surface but our planet is flying through the vastness of uh, of infinite space uh, surrounded by stars and planets and galaxies this is this is where we are you know, space is not uh, is not out there we are we are nature we're we're part of it so i've often used that story as a good example of the way that we we externalize these things, or somehow we take our human condition to be something apart uh, from the natural order, and then we become surprised or shocked, startled or disappointed when our own individual will, our preferences, uh, can't uh, have a don't have a, a, the, a kind of effect that we would like that we decide to 
uh, uh, say, to go someplace, but then we get ill, we get a cold and can't travel, or, or that we injure ourselves and twist an ankle and can't walk around and such like. So everything is, and just uh, um, the uh, this very principle, I, I use this um, a, a great deal in my own practice, um, and in particular in relationship to, to mind and the mental faculties. So I like to take the, the phrase, um, the jitta is dhamma, the mind is dhamma, it's not a person. I'm not making anything more complicated uh, 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 out of that, but just dropping that statement as a reminder because we, the mind keeps thinking, I am a person, I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm a layperson, I'm a monastic, I'm this, I'm that. And it keeps personalizing uh, the, the field of experience. And so, uh, and particularly, me, the experiencer, I am experiencing this life. I am thinking my thoughts. I am remembering. I am desiring. I am fearing. I am irritated. All those I ams. And so just to to shift that view, I, I take. Uh, I find this, it works very, very well in, in my mind, that uh, the mind is Dhamma, not a person. And just to take a little phrase like that, and just <laughs> whenever the... There's that personalizing self selfing habit, just to to shift the view, to drop that suggestion into the mix, and and then to witness, to feel the the effects of that, and uh, in that I I would encourage to uh, people to experiment, find the kind of languaging or wording that that um, is more is most meaningful. But that the, the simple ways of just dropping in a reminder, a kind of uh, a a way of recalibrating the habits of of attention and perception makes a huge difference because we we have such there's such strong conditioning to see to see things in terms of of being a person and uh, one of uh, Lomposomato's most recent books is called uh, Don't Take Your Life Personally and uh, I've often said that uh, I think it could be a, a one sentence book. <laughs> Just have the just have the title of the book, and this is if you just take the title and sit on that for a, for a month, that'll be a, that's a good and valuable read. Just don't take your life personally, and that because it's pointing to the the fact that we do take it personally, and that uh, the more that that is done, then the more that dukkha is created, and that when life is not taken personally, when we see things uh, in terms of nature. Then uh, it, the there's a very different feel, a very different tone to the way life is experienced. And so then also Lumpur is uh, underscoring the fact: yeah, um, <coughs> if you have faith and seek the Dharma, where will you look for it? And you know, saying yeah, it's uh, it's it's inside yourself. It's not somewhere else. It's not in some other monastery or some. Uh, library or some kind of a different country it's it's always exactly here uh, in the forest the dharma is in yourself right there in your body and so that it's it's not something far away it's not something sort of remote or abstract but very very much the the very the fabric of this life any questions thoughts yes so there's no thinker no thought only thinking. There's there, there's thought. Um, well, <laughs> there there's the thoughts arise and pass away. 
you can say there is thinking, but there there isn't a person, an individual agent who is the 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 owner, the creator, and the owner of those thoughts. It just looks it just looks and feels really like there is one, but that's the the core of insight meditation, of vipassana, is say looking at how a thought arises and there's immediately the the feeling or the assumption i am thinking or i am watching this thought <laughs> and that the 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 more that the in the vipassana meditation is developed then the more that's that uh there is no thinker there is no uh, concrete and separate thought there's a process of of experience that is known, but that that knowing isn't a person, doesn't belong to a person. And so that uh, that's one of the reasons why we we practice, and that it takes a lot of you know, application and commitment because the habits of I'm thinking, I'm feeling, this is my mind, my body, that sense of ownership and and agency, our personal agency, is incredibly strong. Yes, Rondela. Um, what comes to me, I, when you're saying about not personalizing in nature, um, I found lately that whenever there is an opportunity to go see someone who's dying, I really am drawn towards going there. And I, I found being with dying people is such an amazing connection you, f- you feel and I reflected on this and realized um, I'm not the family so the family have personalized the situation mm-hmm. and they are suffering but the dying person is just dying uh, they have <coughs> let go of they stop becoming mm-hmm. even a patient or a sickness or an illness mm-hmm. it's just a process of dying and so they are not projecting anything, just dying. And and I, I don't know, when I'm there, it's just, you just can connect, in, like you said, with nature mm-hmm. in that moment. And there's something so beautiful that just, you can't put it into words. Is the whereas the family are suffering, mm-hmm. you said, because they've put a person twice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you're with nature, it's... Yeah, it's a very different flavor. And that's very. I mean, as a doctor, you know that there's a very interesting, uh, I think, a very insightful book by uh, a uh, a doctor called Atul Gawande called Complications, and it's it's uh, unusually it's about all the mistakes that doctors make and the shortcomings that doctors uh, the doctors experience, and uh, when things go wrong, and. one of the interesting insights along the way that he talks about is this sense of if a patient dies, there's this powerful conditioning that if the patient dies, the doctor has failed. And as he's uh, and he's talking about it, I think, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> Sometimes it's uh, you know it can feel that way, and the the the, um, the kind of medical uh, institution can push that idea. But it, uh, the, also the hospice movement is, I think, is connected with the fact that no, 
everybody's going to die sometime, and the, the, and the, even the best doctors in the world can only do so much. And at a certain point, there'll be an out breath and no in breath, and that's the case for a hundred percent of the of the humans on the planet. And that uh, just because the patient has died, it doesn't mean the doctor has failed. And so that uh, I felt that was very, very insightful. He's a very good writer as well, so he's expressed very, very clearly. And that um, that uh, that kind of um, say recognition of the limit of one's capacity and the the the, the natural um, order of things that. Uh, you do your best to help, but beyond a certain limit, there's there's nothing that can be done. And so, um, and uh, Dame Cicely Saunders, I think it was, uh, uh, who founded the hospice movement in in this country, she had to work vigorously to try and get the idea of uh, allowing people to die who are definitely going to die, and allow them to die peacefully, um, when any kind of medical treatment, any sort of intervention, was no longer going to do any good. She had to really work hard to, to so in a sense, bring that that uh, that aspect into the picture. Is that, yeah, doctors, you know, you you make your 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 best efforts and you do everything you can, but at a certain point, there's there's nothing more that can be done, and that that's not that's not failing, <laughs> it's not giving up, it's just attuning to the fact that this is Act Five, Scene Five. Exeunt, <laughs> like it's, it's over. There's, there is no more that can be done here, and uh, so anyway, that, I, I recommend that. It's one of these um, kind of popular science books that I would recommend to people to read. It's got uh, complications. It'll go under. Also, another, another interesting uh, or uh, a helpful reflection <coughs> in terms of nature. And the human body, and, and how we think of ourselves, is that um, uh, I'm not sure of the exact uh, proportion, but uh, the, it is said. <laughs> it's going on the the words of people like Bill Bryson and um, uh, and Lewis Thomas, uh, again popular science writers, that about ninety percent of the DNA in our bodies is not human. That we have. Uh, our body is is not an individual; it's a metropolis of different organisms, um, and that we have a, a huge variety of different bacteria and you know, viruses and, and other living <laughs> of, uh, living commodities that, that contribute to this body in our skin, in our guts, and and all around. And so that uh, I, I don't know if it's true, if uh, that's a correct uh, a correct figure, but. Uh, just to think of uh, uh, this body as as a, a kind of consortium, like a metropolis, just like a whole city uh, of different inf- different elements all coming together, rather than this is me, <laughs> I'm an individual, and they say no, no, it's a, if if the all the bacteria in our gut disappear when people take uh, very strong um, antibiotics, one of the problems is that a lot of the intestinal flora the bacteria that live in our guts they get wiped out so that the uh, that brings all kinds of complications um, and these are these bacteria that live in our guts we, we need them but they're, they're a very important part of our of our, our well-being so it's uh, that sense of I'm an individual and I'll do what I like it's like well no actually 
<laughs> the individual is a it's a um it's a convenient fiction it's just a, a handy way of talking about things but it's it's not uh, not uh, that accurate and that this body that we think of as 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 me is a is a whole kind of aggregation a whole collection of different um elements that come together and we say person <laughs> but uh, even just through the um uh, you know the, the the compounded nature of it, just from the the, the human parts, but also that there's a lot of non-human uh, material in the in the body as well. So to continue, in listening to teachings, the principle is the same. I'm oh, sorry, I did that bit already here. Yeah. Happiness and suffering are the great teacher. Love and hate are your great teacher. This is where the path is. If you're attached to feelings of love, they'll lead you to pain. Look into this. These feelings very directly point out the path. If you're attached to any of them, that's a mistake. Looking into this, you can really come to know. Why is it that we're told to transcend the feelings of love and attachment? Take a good look. In your lives, at home or elsewhere, when you're very attached to someone, loving them more than others, it leads you to suffering. Think about it if you're sceptical. You have to know what this affection is about. Don't throw yourself away. Don't fall asleep. Don't let your mind slumber. Love for people, attachment to possessions, these only bring suffering. Remember this. If it won't stick in your mind, write it down. Look at it. It really is the truth. When you have feelings of love and hate, you need to look into them. They're teaching you, showing you not to fall into extreme ways. Impulses are trying to lead you into uh, left or right-hand paths of indulgence or suppression. The teachings talk of the extremes of indulgence and sensual pleasure and self-torment. When the Buddha was first enlightened to the Dharma, this is what he taught about. These things were true in the Buddha's time, and they're true for us now. So this um, this phrase, uh, love and hate are your great teacher, this was, uh, was part of the very last message that Lumpur Chas uh, sent to Lumpur Sumato um, in, uh, during the, the Rains Retreat of 1981 uh, at Chithurst. I've uh, often mentioned this, but I was, I was there when the, when, the, when the letter arrived, and it was um, uh, it was written by a Western monk staying with Lumpur Cha at the uh, branch monastery at Tamsangpet in um, Amnachuran uh, area in northeast Thailand. Ajahn Chah's health had been pretty shaky, and he'd gone off to to live in this branch monastery on the top of a hill where there's a bit more of a, a little bit cooler and a bit more fresh air and, and so on. And um, Anyway, during that, that range retreat, and this was shortly before he had his, his stroke and was brain damaged, then uh, uh, this letter arrived at, at Chidhurst, uh, and, uh, uh, and it was in the handwriting of this Western monk, and uh, he started off by saying, to, it was a letter to, to Ajahn Sumato, who said, uh, Tanajan, you're not going to believe this, but Lumpur asked me to take dictation this morning. <laughs> so, so he uh, asked me to 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 write the, write to you a message from him, and then 
and then he wrote out the message which which uh, Lumpacha was giving, which was, uh, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building Barami. The, uh, <clears throat> the Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumato is your place of non-abiding. That was that was his last message, and then a few weeks later he had his his stroke and was brain damaged, and then Lumpur Sumato went and visited him many times. But uh, uh, after that, but um, he could never really uh, speak in uh, very much um, in a in a clear way, uh, and could move. Could and then over the next eighteen months or so, his ability to to speak at all and his ability to 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 walk or to, to any kind of voluntary movement steadily eroded and so about a year and a half later he was completely paralyzed and couldn't couldn't speak at all so that was his last instruction was um, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever these are your aids and partners in building baramita so he's not saying you know only love things, never hate things, <laughs> but recognize those those habits of loving and hating, and that through that recognition, through that that exploration, uh, that's where you develop the paramita, the spiritual virtues of um, uh, wisdom and strength and patience and, and uh, loving kindness and equanimity and so forth. Then he goes on to talk about uh, um, uh, this. Uh, the, the uh, dangers and difficulties of, uh, of loving uh, take a good look in your lives at home or elsewhere when you're very attached to someone loving them more than others it leads you to suffering and uh, this is um, it can seem a little bit uh, controversial in the, to Western audience in particular but also even since the Buddha's time it wasn't a particularly popular idea um, one of the uh, the Suttas that is sort of a key teaching on this is called the Pia Jataka Sutta, the born from that which is dear. Pia or Piati is the dearness or fondness, that sense of uh, possessive love. Uh, jataka means born from. So Pia Jataka, born from those who are dear. And uh, the, the scenario starts off with uh, the Buddha sitting in uh, uh, by himself meditating in this parkland. And this uh, man comes along who's very distraught, crying and weeping and upset. And um, and uh, he comes along and sees the Buddha, and a conversation begins. And, and the Buddha remarks, you know, you, you seem you're very upset, very distraught. And he said, well, how could I not be? My my dearest uh, only child has just passed away. So, of course, I'm upset. Of course, I'm, I'm, dist- I'm distraught. I'm, I'm unhappy. And then the Buddha said, Yes, indeed, um, pain and suffering comes from those that are dear. Um, and the man said, what are you talking about? No, it's joy and happiness come from those who are dear. And you, you don't know what you're talking about, you're an idiot. And then finding fault with what the Buddha said, that, you know, that pain and suffering come from those that are dear. So then he, he, he stomps off and he finds another group of people nearby, uh, ga- um, a group of, of men out in the park gambling and so he, he goes and he's full of indignation about this conversation he's just had with the Buddha and he said that idiot monk over there he said pain and suffering come from those that are dear but it's that's not true is it it's it's love it's joy and, and happiness comes from those who are dear that's the most joyful and, and uh, 
and the greatest source of happiness in our lives. Isn't that right? And they said, yeah, absolutely. And they said, oh, I, I agree with the gamblers. That monk is a fool. And so uh, uh, as uh, the, is the way of things and the, the uh, account of this converse, these conversations sort of went through the city uh, of Savati and eventually came to the palace to, to um, King Pasenadi and Queen Malika. And... Um, and King Pasenadi says, "Well, in, in this in this instance, I think that the master is wrong because everyone knows that joy and happiness comes from those who are dear." And then uh, uh, Queen Malika says, "Well, if the master said it, it must be true." And then there's a bit of a domestic dispute arises, and Pasenadi says, "Pa, you know, you always, whenever he says, you always think it's true without any question. You know, you always side with him. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here." So there's a little. Contretemps, a little domestic dispute there. And she says, okay, fine, fine. So they, they decide, okay, well, next time we have the master to come and visit, we'll ask him this question. So a while later, the Buddha is invited to the palace, and the King Pasenadi asks this question and says, so, so Venerable Sir, we heard it said that uh, you had stated that pain and suffering come from those who are dear, but uh, surely that can't be correct. You, know, you couldn't really have said that. He says, oh, yes, that's exactly correct. That's precisely what I said. And so then, uh, so Pasenadi is put, uh, sort, of, uh, um, sort of corrected on that. And then the, the, the Buddha then says, so, so great king, uh, um, is the princess Vajiri, is she dear to you? And he says, yes, she's my, my dearest child and uh, I love her very much. So if something happened to her, if she became ill or she died or something, uh, some kind of, uh, something uh, unfortunate happened to her. How would you feel? Well, I'd be very upset. I'd be very distressed. Okay. <laughs> then, so, is the uh, is the, the 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 chief minister dear to you? Is Queen Malika dear to you? I think Malika doesn't quite get into the first or second position. So the Buddha was very diplomatic, since he could uh, I think, tell there was still a bit of friction in the air. And so, yeah, is the chief minister, is Queen Malika dear to you? Is the uh, the city of Savati dear to you? Is the state of of uh, Kosala dear to you? And so on and so forth. And there's this whole long string of things. And said, hey, so if something happened to the minister, if something happened to Malika, if something happened to the city, how would you feel? I'd be very upset. I'd be distressed. Because he really hammers the point home. And, um, and eventually, after about 10 or 12 of these, King Pasenadi says, okay, 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 you know, I get the point. <laughs> I see that there's pain and suffering come from those who are dear. And the other um, uh, principal place where this is highlighted, again, with the death of a, a child, is um, when uh, Visaka, again, in the city of Savati, she comes to the monastery in the middle of the day, and uh, she comes to see the Buddha, and... Uh, uh, it's unusual for a lay person to visit at that time of the day, uh, and then her hair is wet and her clothes are wet, from, uh, and which is again kind of unusual. So the Buddha says, well, where, "Where are you coming from in the middle of the day, Visaka, with your hair and your clothes wet like this?" Should, well, I've, I've, uh, how could uh, uh, how could I stay away? My dearest grandchild just passed away, so I've just come from the funeral, and so my hair is wet, my clothes are wet from the the oblations uh, as part of the funeral ceremonies, and so. But I wanted to come to the monastery and to, to find some kind of consolation because it's so upsetting, so distressing that I've lost lost this child, this uh, this grandchild. 
and then the Buddha says, so, um, so Visaka, um, would you like to have as many children and grandchildren as there are people in the city of Savati? And she says, oh yes, of course, absolutely. And she, uh, according to the stories, she had 20, she had 20 children, 10, uh, 10 daughters, 10 sons, and each of those had 20 children. So she had 400 grandchildren, it is said. And uh, so she already had 400 grandchildren and, and 20, 20 kids. And then the Buddha said, well, Visaka, um, every single day at least 10 people die in the city of Savati. If not 10, 9, if not 9, 8, if not 9, 8, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. At least one person dies every single day in the city of Savati. Would you ever be without your hair and your clothes wet from being at a funeral? She she was very quick on the uptake and said, All right, enough of having so many children and grandchildren. <laughs> okay, okay. So she got the point a lot quicker than King Pasenadi. Um But uh, that um, relationship of love and suffering is, is very important to, to consider. And what it hinges on, I would say, is that there's at least two different kinds of love that are referred to. So this the word... Pia, P-I-Y-A, Pia, or Piati, dearness. Uh, it's a possessive love. It's like a, uh, it's a sense of ownership and a sense of, uh, of individuality. I love you, you love me. I belong to you, you belong to me. There's a, a polarity, uh, 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 an otherness there. And as long as there is that uh, possessiveness, I belong to you, you belong to me, uh, uh, I am yours, you are mine, as long as there's a possessiveness, then that is what's going to produce the, the dukkha. That's the, the kind of uh, crucial element. If, uh, if love is non-possessive, if it's a metta, karuna, mudita, and the um, loving-kindness, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, and so forth, then if that, that's a, a love that is non-possessive, it's, uh, and so that these are qualities of the Buddha, they're parameters of, of the, the Buddha, uh, of loving kindness is is very much a part of the Buddha's nature, and uh, and compassion and, and uh, kindness, and so that's a kind of love that can be abundant, exalted, immeasurable, as we recite regularly in the chanting, but it's not possessive at all. So that it's it's a, a kind of loving that is totally sincere, but it's not possessive, and so that when the 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 uh, the being or the beings that you love are not around, there's no sense of absence. If the love is possessive uh, and there's a strong sense of, of ownership, as Nampo Chao puts it, um, uh, if you're very attached to someone, loving loving them more than others, it leads you to suffering. Um, and that, uh, that you, you know, we can see from that, that kind of uh, an equation of... of uh, if there's a sense of possessiveness and ownership, then then we we find ourselves missing other people if they're if they're not around and and wanting to uh, if they've if they've gone away or the relationship is is broken or they uh, they're living somewhere else in the sense of uh, of longing or separation, and so that um, I think the the more that we uh, train in in uh, in and uh, embody dhamma, then the more that the kind of way that we love each other can be very sincere and abundant, uh, you know, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. <laughs> but if it's not possessive, then uh, we we never lose anybody because <laughs> we've never we've never owned anybody. And so um, sometimes people would ask, uh, 
when uh, when before Lumpur Sumedho came came back to live here, or when I was living in the States, people say, oh, "Do you miss Do you miss Ajahn Sumedho?" And I'd say, "No." And they go, "Oh, that's very disrespectful." Don't you love you know? Don't you sort of love him and respect him? I say, "Yes, absolutely." If he's around, and if he's around, I greatly enjoy his company, and I'm very happy to to be close to him, and it's very kind of warm and friendly. And I said, "Well, don't you miss him when he's not around?" But no. And it's it's interesting the number of times that people can't quite find a place to put that. That it's uh, it seems like well if you if you really love and respect someone that you'd you'd always want to be close to them. Uh, you want to be nearby, and if they're not there, then you you feel a sense of, of loss or, or something missing. But I would say that the more that we really cultivate uh, dhamma practice, and, and that is a a more of a, a, a realization in, in our lives, then the more that you're inclining away from that pia, piati, the kind of that possessive way of loving, and the, you know, the heart is more inclining towards metta karuna. So, whenever you have feelings of love and hate, you need to look into them. They're teaching you, showing you not to fall into extreme ways. And so then uh, he then quotes that um, the the beginning of the Dhammachaka Sutta, where it says starts off by saying There, these are the two extremes that are not to be followed by one who has uh, who has gone forth, one who is a spiritual uh, aspirant. Um, that the indulgence in sensual pleasure and indulgence in self mortification, self torment, that. Um, the middle way is the letting go of that either indulgence and and sense of of possession of wanting to be with someone or suppression or, or in terms of relationships that wanting to get away or wanting to to not feel to not be around others and so that um that is a a, you know, a way of characterizing those those two two qualities but i feel this is a very helpful way also uh, those of you who might have read the pilgrim carmenita carl gellerup's uh, book which is a kind of buddhist legendary romance and then one of the, the key pieces of that uh, you know that story was written by a danish uh, author over 100 years ago 112 yeah in, in 1906 it was first published so it's written a long time ago but um one of the, the key pieces of the whole story is where the Buddha uh, gives a, a theme for contemplation to um, to the heroine of the story, Vasiti. And, so, and the, the theme for her to contemplate is where there is love, there is also suffering. And so that uh, if you want a, a more um, a kind of, uh, of a, a story in which to uh, have some reflections and uh, say exploration of that area then uh, the pilgrim Carmenita is there's copies on the shelves right behind you and there's also lots of notes and references at the back you can look at where all the different uh, uh, the some of these teachings I've been quoting them the Pia Jataka Sutra and then the dialogue with Visanka then I make I made notes of all of those uh, for people to look up and refer to so any thoughts questions yes Parisa at the back there, yeah. Thank you. Um, 
like how would you practically shift that more over to the environment of Harris and is it literally just bringing awareness to that attachment and over time that will dissipate? That's pretty much it. Uh, I think just uh, feeling the, the 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 kind of attachment, being uh, attentive to the <coughs> the the way the mind is holding that particular person, your parents or other you know, loved ones, or just letting that 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 sense of of dearness and and possessiveness. Uh, really be felt and known and then that um, uh, the, the in a way the more wordless that is and the more it's just a felt sense of because of that sense of your mind uh, and uh, you know and uh, I care uh, in that possessive way just feeling the, the the painfulness of that then that brings its own message so you don't even have to think Oh, this is painful. Therefore, therefore, I should let go. It's just, just like having a, a your hand touching a, a hot stove. You know, you know then, then there's, there's the recognition. Ah, oh, this is hot. You know, and there's a a natural um, uh, falling away from that, and then different kinds of relating uh, arise in in, uh, in in their place. If you're going to ask something. I was, um, I was just going to make a comment, um, Please. Or, or just say, pretty much backing up what you both just said, simply that perhaps it's that we've kind of got a lack of language, and it's possessive love, it's not love itself, because mm-hmm. if it's wise love, like piety, you say that's wise love. No, piety is the possessive love. Oh, sorry. Metta, metta karuna. Metta karuna. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Although you don't really have metagaruna for your children or your spouses, for example, it's, I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, you do, right? But it's, it's, a, it's slightly a different way than when you, you have metagaruna as well for everybody, right? But it's like much more for your children, mm-hmm. those who are very close to you. Um, you can obviously notice that. But um, so I'm just saying that if we had a word for, for example, to, for possessive love, like that's obviously going to bring suffering. That's a negativity for mm-hmm. being really possessive over somebody, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that, that's all I was going to say. It's just sort of being able to distinguish mm-hmm. the two, uh, and then it's quite easy to understand the mm-hmm. concept. I think that we're talking about. Yeah, it's it's a. Um, uh, I would agree that uh, the way of languaging, because love is that that, that phrase. The Greeks have a word for it. It comes from the fact that there were many words for love in Greek. That so they were diff- uh, kind of uh, acknowledging various different shades and different different tones uh, of that, as far as I understand. And that not that I speak Greek. <laughs> Any Greek speakers? I don't speak Greek, but there's the whole thing, isn't it, Corinthians, where they talk about eros, philos, agape, or something like mm-hmm. that. There's the, there's the erotic love, there's the brotherly love, and there's the kind of universal love. Yeah, so the, there's the, the kind of um, agape, is that, that, that sort of spiritual love, that uh, was the karuna. But also in the, in the, the, um, the Metta Sutta, the Karani Metta Sutta, the example that the Buddha gives is even as, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So so with a boundless heart should one cherish all, uh, all living beings. And so that 
he does use that parental love, a love of a mother for the child to, to characterize um, um, sort of meta taken to its fulfillment. But also, uh, to quote, probably misquote, Khalil Gibran, um, who was uh, very uh, much, I think he was Lebanese poet, um, in his book, the, uh, one of his, his poems, uh, or it's a section, I think, in, in the prophet called On Children. And he says, your children are not your children. They are sons and daughters of life longing for itself. So that's a uh, that they're they're not your <laughs> children. They're not they they uh, they come through you, but they uh, they do not belong to you. I mean, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but those are all there in the, in Khalil Gibran. Mm-hmm. But then that sort of love is something we really want to cultivate. So I mean, I think that's quite important to emphasize uh, in in talking about this. It's not like um, do away with it. So if you, if we, you've got to cultivate the correct kind of love. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't recognize, don't sort of think this is just love. No, I don't need any of it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, and that's one of the things that you you find with uh, some of the you know the, the great the great Ajans, the amount of of time and effort and sincerity they'll spend helping their their, their students, their disciples, you know, even someone who's really notably crusty, like uh, Lugdan Mahabua, who's known for being kind of really fierce and blunt and kind of not a very cuddly kind of a person. <laughs> One of his most famous Dhamma talks is uh, in his later life, where he's actually, he's, he, he bursts into tears because he said, you've got to understand this. This is so important that this you know, you, uh, just the sense of caring it kind of actually forms into to shedding tears. And I, I know there's, uh, you can find it on YouTube, Shedding Tears for the Dhamma. You can see it, you can, uh, and with, uh, with, with I think with a translation as well. But that sense of caring, and he was a very notably sort of punchy, no-nonsense kind of a character, but his, the, his love and caring for people then this took shape in that in that way of so um but still there the, uh, i'd say that's that's still not a possessive or that's not a, it's not a a, a a the kind of love that is uh, burdensome or stressful or, or creates that sense of, of of lack or separation it's a it's a good area to explore to investigate and to to see how the mind relates to those things um, and to that you know the, those areas and that to <clears throat> and again finding your own way of languaging things is very uh, is very helpful that he, uh, uh, you know there's many many nationalities and languages here <laughs> but for each of us just finding a way of getting a sense for how you express that and how you uh, how that takes shape in your mind, or how to give voice to that, or how to describe that. But uh, it was really uh, one of the sto- another of the stories that Lumpo Sumedha tells about about Lumpo Cha and how um, he, kind of extraordinary and inspiring he was as a teacher, and how how loving he was for his his disciples. So uh, in the early days of the the Western monks. Um, 
community was probably about 1974, 75. Um, uh, Ajahn Sumedha was at, uh, was at uh, Wat Pong, and there was a, a few other Westerners there. And um, one of the, a, a young American monk had got into a, a very intense kind of psychotic state and was really uh, having a, a lot of uh, s- s- extremes of mental uh, mental problems. His mind had really gone off, uh, gone off balance. And, uh, and he said it was the only time he ever saw Lumpo Cha hesitate. He said he was, uh, it had been a, uh, it was an observance day and people had been uh, coming to the monastery all day long and then Lumpo Cha had, um, had, <clears throat> they'd had the, the recitation of the rule and then he'd gone into the sala, given the long Dhamma talk and, and so uh, Ajahn Sumedha had been looking after this this young American bhikkhu who was really kind of ranting and raving and really in a terrible state. And uh, he he was uh, waiting at the door of the sala when Lumpur Chao came out and he said, yeah, Lumpur, you know, this uh, this monk is having a really, really difficult time. Would you be able to see him? And he said, for a moment, Lumpur Chao, he could see that. Oh, give me a break. There was, a sort of <laughs> there was this wave of, really... And uh, he said it's the only time he ever saw Ajahn Shah kind of even the slightest wobble, and then and he said, "Okay, take you know, take me to him." It's after it's kind of like a just a brief, the briefest sort of moment of, <sighs> and then and then Lumpur Chah stayed up all night with him, just spent the whole night with him and kind of talking to him and helping to take care of him and, and sort of talked him talked him yeah, talked him down. Spend the whole night together with this this, uh, this uh, young bhikkhu, so that. <clears throat> but then, you know, he would have walked away at the end of the night. Okay, <laughs> who who else is <laughs> who else is in need here that he wouldn't be carrying that person around? Not that you don't care, but just okay. He seems to be settled. He's resting. Okay. Leave that be and go off, and so that not carrying people around, not, uh, not creating others and carrying them around is a is doesn't mean you don't care or that you don't love a person, but you're just not uh, creating them in your mind or making them sort of your personal burden or personal responsibility. So let's continue. See if we can <coughs> carry on a little more. Where can you look to understand the truth of this? Just in your own mind. The tendency we have is that when we love someone, we want to be with them all the time. And when we feel hatred towards someone, we don't even want to be near them. Do any of you have these feelings? Please look and teach yourselves. Do you see how they lead you to suffer? This is talking about the noble truths, suffering and its origin, which is love and attachment. You can see the fact of this if you look at your lives. Are your attachments and anxieties something good and beneficial? Don't let your minds get caught in unreasonable attachment. It's as if you eat a banana, toss the peel away, but when the chickens and the other animals want to eat it, i.e. the peel, you still feel possessive and concerned over it, unable to relinquish attachment. With gain, you are elated. With loss, you are depressed. This is just what the Buddha talked about when he said to avoid the two extremes. Talk to your mind to make it capable of avoidance. 
Therefore, practitioners of Dharma, having heard the teachings, need to investigate these feelings of attachment and aversion towards people as they occur and continuously make efforts to train their minds. Looking at this and avoiding extreme reactions will support the mind and support the path. Don't fall in the ditch. Love is a ditch. Hatred is a ditch. The Buddha really understood these things. Through his practice and enlightenment, he saw that they are truly impermanent, full of suffering and without self-essence. When love comes, put it aside. When hatred comes, put it aside. If you're not able to put them down, train the mind to do so. These things by themselves are not going to bring peace to the mind. This is the Dharma. This is what the Buddha's dispensation is. You have to look right here. You have to seek peace here. This is the path to nirvana. You want to go running after those things? You'll fall into the lower realms. Tell your mind that. Don't get attached and give meaning to such things. Don't you go to work in the fields? You know how to shout at the buffalo so it will obey you and go where you want it to. So, why can't you shout at yourself and get some control of where your mind goes? Probably not that many of us have shouted at buffaloes in the past. But, <laughs> but I think you can translate this into uh, 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 other, maybe uh, expressing yourself to other family members uh, different times, making your point. <clears throat> We're talking about reaching the place where there are no causes, where causes are exhausted. If there is love or hate, it means causes exist. If there is a cause, there'll be a result. If there is birth, there will be death. That's how it is for us. When there is love and attachment, there's going to be hatred and aversion. If we go to heavenly states, we'll also end up going to hell. Going to hell, we then go to heaven. It's like this, the realm of becoming and birth. So the Buddha wanted us to investigate. It's not something that only applies to certain people. These principles are universally true. So, where should you practice your samadhi? What will you meditate on? When you see, you let go immediately. Make your efforts here. Train the mind with skillful means to make it pliable, just as a blacksmith heats metal to soften it and can then shape it into any useful tool that he desires. Just so, we soften our minds with training and precepts, with restraint, with the practice of meditation and with investigation. Our minds will then soften and surrender to become peaceful. So that's the end of that chapter. I think there's quite a few um, uh, themes there that uh, are very much worthy of, of um, development and contemplation. Uh, if you're able, if you're not able to put them down, train the mind to do so. Another of Lumpur Chow's well-known sta uh, sta uh, statements was, "If you put it all down, you'll see the truth. If you don't, you won't." Yeah, very blunt. <laughs> But clear uh, encouragement. If you put it all down, you'll see the truth. If you don't, you won't. There's a few things, just a few things you want to carry around and and keep. Then you just have a, a few things that create suffering. Uh, also, the um, when he says, "When you see, you let go immediately." Well, also another of his very very helpful teachings that I frequently quote is that it might not be immediate. <laughs> 
and that uh, sometimes you know, habits are extraordinarily tenacious. They're very strong. They, they you know, you make the effort to let go. I think, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to let go, but this thing is stuck, <laughs> you know, like a, a, a sticky wrapper of a of a, a sweet bar. It's like, or it's uh, you're trying to let go, but it keeps being stuck to your to your hand. So that um, <clears throat> when you when you see you let go immediately, uh, I would say, well, uh, sometimes it can be immediate. Other times, then uh, it just takes a lot of patience before the actual uh, letting go uh, and the the ending of something happens. Um, and uh, so, another of the the teachings of Lumpur Cha that's extraordinarily helpful is that uh, he uh, he once said. 50 to 70 percent of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to so that sound, might sound like a really good excuse like oh <laughs> i've got an out <laughs> but uh he thought uh, he was extraordinarily practical and he would know like if you want uh you might want to if you if you're accustomed to smoking you might want to, to stop smoking but you you are um the urge to have a smoke or uh, then can keep arising even when you said i'm not going to smoke anymore but you know you should let go but the the urge to 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 uh, the causes for that habit uh, are coming from one place and the urge to 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 stop the habit is coming from another place they they are sort of driven by different parts of the mind and so that if you want to stop smoking then for some time some weeks or months there's going to be that that urge to have a smoke is going to arise and had to be to be appreciated and known and let go of it doesn't just disappear altogether so that that um uh that sense of a practical <coughs> understanding of how life works so you can see yeah this is unskillful this is this is not helpful this is uh, obstructive but <laughs> and even though there's a, an appreciation of the painfulness or the stupidity of following those impulses of uh, aversion or fear or desire uh, opinions and so on that uh, just that recognition of this is unskillful this is painful that isn't enough to remove all the causes <laughs> the, the causes have already been created there's a certain momentum there so patiently receiving the results of those causes and just like if you want to give up smoking that sense of oh, okay here's that desire to have a smoke again okay it arises let go it arises let go so that um, that uh, you can't undo causes that have already been created, but where we do have uh, a, a degree of control or capacity is in receiving the effects of those causes, how the mind relates to those effects here in the present moment. So that is the end of that chapter, end of chapter two, and... Uh, the end of I think tomorrow's the half moon day, so this will be the last reading for the next couple of days. So I'll leave it there for today.